Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. This is a special episode released in response to the recently published American Heart Association 2023 focused update on the management of patients with cardiac arrest or life-threatening toxicity due to poisoning, just published in the journal Circulation on September 18th. These guidelines are a fantastic review of the initial treatment priorities that a clinician should consider when confronted with a cardiac arrest or life-threatening presentation of a poisoning or drug overdose. See, poisoning cardiac arrest is not regular cardiac arrest. Antidotes, toxicology consultation, and ECMO play a much larger role in many of these cardiac arrest situations. So in this episode, we sit down with the lead author, Dr. Eric Lavonis, an emergency medicine physician and medical toxicologist. He's not just the lead author of these guidelines, but also the past author of the American Heart Association Special Considerations and Cardiac Arrest Guidelines. We're going to dive into many of the recommendations made by the American Heart Association, as well as the evidence and rationale behind some of these recommendations. We'll cover all sorts of topics like the role of naloxone in cardiac arrest, when to start vasopressors or high-dose insulin in beta blocker and calcium channel blocker overdose, the use of intravenous fat emulsion in various overdoses, lumazenil's role in benzodiazepine overdose, as well as quite a bit more. Importantly, we also discuss what future knowledge gaps exist and need to be addressed to improve the care of poisoning-induced cardiac arrest. We really get to have some fun discussion. But these guidelines are pretty comprehensive, and they cover about 12 different toxins, so we do not have time to cover each section. Because of that, I've released right alongside this episode a high-yield highlight that is going to cover every poison covered by the guidelines in the key points from the guidelines on how to manage them. So if you're just looking for a high-yield review or you want to have the guidelines covered before you listen to this discussion and you don't have time to read them, I suggest you check that episode out that was released right alongside this. It's called High-Yield Highlights, the 2023 American Heart Association Cardiac Arrest or Life-Threatening Toxicity in Poisoning episode. All right, without further ado, let's dive into these guidelines and how they can help you care for severely poisoned patients. Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, and this is a really exciting episode that I think is going to be relevant to anyone who practices in the field of toxicology and quite a lot of people who do not practice in the field of toxicology. Today, we're talking about the 2023 American Heart Association focused update on the management of patients with cardiac arrest or life-threatening toxicity due to poisoning. And we're very lucky today to have the first author of this guideline joining us to talk about its importance, its relevance, how you can use it, uh, Dr. Eric Lavonis. So Dr. Lavonis, would you mind introducing yourself and uh, telling the listeners a little bit about who you are, where you work, and what you've been up to? Hey, Ryan, that was amazing. You made the title of this thing sound exciting. <laughs> well, I try my best. Hey, all, I'm Eric Lavonis. I am from Denver. Um, I am with Denver Health and Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Safety and the University of Colorado. 
Uh, I practice emergency medicine and medical toxicology. And for the last uh, bunch of years, a big focus of my career has been resuscitation guideline writing. So this um, project really intersects two of my great loves of toxicology. Well, three of my great loves of toxicology, taking care of poison patients who are really sick and uh, helping digest the literature um, to make things uh, easier and a little bit more standardized for everyone. And this isn't your first go around at standardizing poisoning resuscitation care. I think the first time I actually came across your name, I was writing a review chapter on how to manage uh, tricyclic antidepressant overdose for pharmacists. And I needed to find some source to talk about how you need to give, you know, sodium bicarb in a wide complex QRS, cardiac arrest from a TCA. It should be a consideration, right? And I went and I found the AHA special considerations in cardiac arrest. And lo and behold, uh, that was the first time I came across your name because you were the first author, I believe, of those guidelines. So what's keeping you coming back to this? So there's a couple of fun things about doing this. One is you get to work with amazing people, right? And I just want to call attention to the author list of these guidelines because I mean, the only thing I did right in there, if I only did one thing right, I did the important thing right, which was to pull these guys together, right? P-Doc Panunu, Annie Ahrens, Kavita Babu, James Tsao, uh, Bob Hoffman, Chris Hoyt, Marianne uh, Amirshahi, um, Andy Stolbach, Maud St. Ange, Travon Thompson, Sam Wang, um, Ian Drennan. I mean, these people are all legends in toxicology or resuscitation. And, you know, mostly what I had to do was keep everybody organized, stand back and let them go. Yeah, the author list on the we were talking about this article a little bit on rounds the other day, and we were looking at the author list, and we had decided as a group to use a colloquial term here that you had somehow managed to wrangle all the cool kids in toxicology to get on this guideline. I mean, really, these are the people when I'm at a conference, I want to pick their brains about what they do. So I appreciate uh uh, seeing them collate their opinions. There was probably a fair amount of discussion going on in the back. Oh, they're great people for telling you when they think you're wrong. And you need that, right? Yeah. You know, if you don't have, you know, fellows or colleagues or people who are questioning you and making you defend what you think you know, you'll never get smarter. You never get better. Absolutely. But the other two really fun parts about this are you get to figure out where your food came from, right? You know, when I was in Cub Scouts, we went to a farm to learn where our food came from. You know, here you dig in and, and read those articles and go, why are we doing this? Oh, you know, this article I've been quoting to my fellows for 20 years. Good thing they never read it because I've been <laughs> quoting it wrong, you know, and, and you really scrapes it back and brings you back to the basics. Well, yeah. Can you comment a little bit on what the purpose was of this guideline? Why, why did the AHA come out with this guideline now? Our goal here isn't to bring the toxicology, the board certified medical or clinical toxicologist up to the next level. If we do a little bit of that, that's great. My goal is to bring everybody up to a certain level. So at four in the morning, when somebody with a bad um, calcium channel blocker overdose shows up in a small community hospital, the idea of an insulin drip isn't news to the physician or the pharmacist that they can just go ahead and implement on the things that we've known for years people need to be doing. And the other thing is dissemination, right? right? The American Heart Association trains 22 million people per year worldwide with their resuscitation products. 
Now, most of that is um, is hands-on, hands-only citizen CPR quick classes, right? You know, these guidelines, which are really mostly in hospital, advanced adult and pediatric life support, are going to go to a smaller number than that. But still, there's dissemination from this, right? I mean, I can write an article in a great journal. It'll be read by a few thousand people. Uh, but these guidelines have legs. You know, Heart Association also has this communications tool called the Knowledge Chunk. Uh, which really breaks things down. So you can take any section of this guideline and you've got something you can read in five minutes that stands alone with graded recommendations, um, evaluation of the evidence uh, um, and uh, references all in one go that you can, I mean, it's a five minute read if you just want to read about methemoglobinemia. Um, Of course, brevity, um, you got to leave something out, but you got to focus. And I think uh, brevity in writing and structural writing makes us communicate better. And I, I think that's what I love about American Heart Guidelines is I can go to a five bullet point summary of this is what you should do. And then there's more. Then there's you can look into the there, there's another section right below it where you can read the details and the evidence. But in the moment when someone's dying, you need that this is what you should do. And I, I read through these guidelines and I agree. I really like how you phrase it. You know, this is really to bring everyone up to the level of being familiar with the initial management priorities in a critically ill poisoned patient or in a cardiac arrest poisoned patient. And it's a huge breadth of topics that are covered in this guideline. For the listeners, there's 12 different categories covered. So we have opioids, benzodiazepines, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, sympathomimetics, sodium channel blockers, cocaine, cyanide, digoxin, methemoglobinemia, organophosphates, and carbamates. So there's really, I might even be missing one there, but uh, anyone who takes on new, let's say, toxicology learners, these are topics that you're probably going to go through at some point. And I, I think I've already identified a uh, a role that I'm going to use these for, which is having my tox learners take 20 minutes and read those uh knowledge snapshots that you were talking about so that they can at least understand the very first treatment priorities for a critically ill version of that uh, poisoning. So I really think they're valuable in that sense as well. Let's just talk a little bit about how does this update differ from previous guidelines? Yeah, so I think there's um, some stuff that's new, right? Uh, ECMO for poisoning has really landed on the scene in the last few years. And it's still getting out more into the community, right? Um, you know, it still requires a fairly large center and a pretty dedicated team. Uh, but toxicologists and anyone taking care of really sick poison patients need to understand um, that ECMO is out there. Then you think about it. You need to um, lean into it early for those patients who need it. And uh, just to give people a basic understanding of how um, ECMO fits into the grand picture of things is novel for these guidelines. We've never covered methemoglobinemia before. Uh, we've never covered covered a few of these other topics before. Uh, for the other things, it's mostly refinement and improvement. So the last time we tackled this hard was in 2010. Um, and most of these topics had a decent going over in 2010. Uh, but at the time, first of all, that was 13 years ago. Um, and the processes for guideline development weren't nearly as solid as they were today. A lot of those 2010 reviews were six or eight of us doing quick reviews, writing things, and bring them out to a group, uh, a mixed group of resuscitation experts, um, which was good. The outside voices um, 
uh, are great for, for asking questions, but we were long overdue. The, the prior guidelines, although you'll find that not a ton changed, the rationale and understanding is a whole lot deeper now than it was. If you had asked me in 2015 about the role of intralipid, because we covered it then, we didn't understand the potential problem of intralipid increasing drug absorption from the gut. Right, It hadn't dawned on anyone yet that these were all IV models, and that's a huge um, Achilles heel for intralipid use for patients who still have a fatal dose of drug that's not been absorbed from the intestines yet. So I think there are some new things, there's some refinements, there's some deepening of understanding, uh, and it also just pulls everything together in one place. And, you know, I really like the explicitness of kind of the top 10 summary statements. They really highlight some of the newer things that are being focused on in this guideline, because Cardiac arrest from poisoning is not cardiac arrest from other causes. It really is managed different. And at this point, there's not been an explicit call out on how to do that. I mean, antidote utilization, ECMO and toxicology consult are extremely important in a cardiac arrest due to poisoning. And I think before this guideline, there's nothing that really said that in a very clear, concise way. So maybe we could dive in just a little bit to some of the actual recommendations. And I know you are um, the uh, the voice of a whole panel at the moment, so we, we won't hold you to anything uh, specific. But Ryan, uh, I have made a whole career of standing on the shoulder of giants. I am <laughs> that is my happy space. All right, we we can hopefully talk about some of the more unique things. So let's talk about one one of the most common drug induced cardiac arrests or that we see, which is going to be opioids. Given the prominence of opioid overdose in North America, how does this update kind of address the evolving challenges in treatment of opioid overdose? Sure. So first of all, i got to give a big shout out to Ash Pankal and the 2020 um, adult and pediatric and, and Alexis uh, Tobjian, uh, who wrote the uh, opioid section in 2020. Um, our group looked at this, tackled it and said, wow, we're going to do a big rewrite and we're going to make it better. And we read what was written there. We're like, we can't make it better. This was awesome. The 2020 group <laughs> did such a great job. We went through and really made minor rewarding tweaks, mainly to try to um, reduce the risk that somebody's going to, confronted with a patient with an opioid overdose who is breathing, who is protecting their airway, to say, we don't need naloxone in that situation, right? I mean, my ideal situation from an opioid overdose patient is to not need to give naloxone because we all struggle with that question of how long do I need to observe the patient after naloxone? The easiest solution to that problem is if you don't need naloxone, then you've solved the problem. And when the drug wears off, then you have that secondary prevention conversation about do you want to start on buprenorphine or methadone? And here's some counseling resources and how can we help you, right? Because we know that the next two days are high lethality and the next month and the next year are high risk of death. But my ideal patient doesn't need naloxone at all. Some people need naloxone, absolutely, right? Community naloxone is here to stay. Uh, my personal opinion, I'm not speaking for the Heart Association, any of this, my personal opinion is naloxone administration is now a BLS skill. I think that when we teach CPR courses, we should be teaching naloxone administration. Wouldn't even matter if you had tourniquets in on that at the same time. But, um, but naloxone administration is an everybody skill. I have naloxone in my bag that I carry with me everywhere I go. Um, my uh, my high school age daughter, my college age son have naloxone in their bags. They don't have substance abuse problems. What they have is friends and they occasionally go to the bathroom and you never know when you're going to need naloxone. And I encourage everybody 
really teenage years and up to to have it and know how to use it um, because you can't recover from, from substance use disorder when you're dead. Some great forward thinking and how we can actually mobilize more people to become naloxone trained. As someone who does naloxone training for the public and have done some stop the bleed training, it would be great if we can just get it all lumped in with BLS training at one time. So uh, I hope to see that in the in the near future. And naloxone, obviously, every toxicologist uh, should have a, have actually at our North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology, we gave out naloxone for everyone who came to the microphone for our acute intensive care symposium, which I believe you helped contribute to. So thank you for that. Well, that's not fair, Ryan. You told me the first person asked the question would have gotten naloxone. I would have totally gone out to the to the microphone to get free swag. We ran out after about six or seven, but that's uh, <laughs> right. So, okay, here's something that comes up, I think, frequently. So I think in this explicit guidelines for AHA, it says naloxone can be used for respiratory depression. Using naloxone in respiratory depression can prevent cardiac arrest. But there is a, a bit of a debate, I suppose, as to what the role of naloxone is in cardiac arrest. And I think the guidelines themselves state this is a future thing that needs to be looked at. But really, we do not know what the role is at this point. Am I saying that correctly? I agree. If anybody wants to completely nerd out on this, in 2021, there was an AHA scientific statement on it um, that goes as deep as deep can be on this question. Uh, it's it's the AHA scientific statement on um, opioid-associated out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. But here's the short version. There's no data that naloxone does anything in cardiac arrest, right? And if you're in a healthcare setting so we got two settings, right? You got the, the out in the world setting, the first aid setting, and you got the healthcare provider setting. Out in the world, general people, we know that the general public can't do pulse checks well, right? For that matter, we also know that paramedics um, and physicians can't do pulse checks well. I just got to plug this. This is a brilliantly designed little study, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who did this. The setting was in an operating room where they're putting patients on bypass. Right. So there's a point in that procedure where you've got a pulse because you've had a pulse since you were born. And then at some point they put you on bypass, stop the heart. And now you have non-pulsatile blood flow. Right. So in the course of this, while the surgeons were doing their surgery thing, they would bring in paramedics um, and I believe physicians and nurses and have them feel the pulse and say, is there a pulse here or not? And it turns out, you know, even when calm, right, even when positioned well, everything else, we're all terrible at pulse checks, right? In the hospital, we got lots of other things to help us figure out if this patient has a pulse. But out in the public library, you don't have that. Yeah, you don't see many people collapsing in a library with uh, an A-line in already so you could see their, their waveforms. So that's a shout out uh, our Denver public librarians. They are unsung heroes in the <laughs> war against opioid overdose. They're really hey, fantastic. That's true. Right. So the Heart Association's paradigm is even if you know there's an opioid overdose, you don't know whether it's a respiratory arrest or a cardiac arrest yet. So in that situation, go ahead and give the naloxone. There's no reason to think that it hurts somebody in cardiac arrest. I can give you theoretical reasons, right? You've got an opioid-dependent brain that you're suddenly provoking into withdrawal, which is a high metabolic demand state at a time when they're in low flow. I can think of reasons that might be harmful, but I can't show you human or animal data that says it is. So out in the general public world, if there's any question about pulselessness, just give them a lockdown, right? Yeah, that is a really interesting point. You come across someone unresponsive, you're suspecting an opioid overdose, well, either they're in cardiac arrest, and if you give them naloxone, it's not going to make a difference, really, but, you know, or 
it's a respiratory arrest and you checked a pulse and didn't feel one well maybe you just did a bad job at that and now you're not giving them naloxone that actually also you know a dose of naloxone could bring them back right so missing out on that is actually seems like a big miss uh, that's a really interesting point to bring up about the accuracy of an infield pulse check and just for listeners to clarify here because i'm not sure i actually read this right the first time so here's the official recommendations from the guideline for acute management of opioid overdose for patients in a respiratory arrest rescue breathing or bvm should be maintained until spontaneous breathing returns okay for patients known or suspected to be in cardiac arrest in the standard resuscitative measures should take priority over naloxone administration so start cpr first all that stuff and then for a patient with suspected overdose who has a definite pulse, but no normal breathing or only gasping, that is who we're going to give naloxone to, right? So people who have a respiratory arrest only. But if there's a question about it, we should probably just give alongside CPR and all those other things. The other thing with the out of hospital is there's no reason to go super slow with the naloxone if you're not sure what's going if you're in a place where you can't ventilate the patient right in the public library in the walgreens bathroom where you can't ventilate this patient effectively it's okay to give a little more naloxone right you're gonna you may precipitate withdrawal but a live patient withdrawal is still a win also out in the world let's face it it's really hard to ventilate people without equipment and it's really really hard to ventilate people if you're not trained and don't have ongoing use of those skills because ventilating people is a perishable skill. Let's go back to the hospital. Right now, I know this person's got a pulse. There's no rule for naloxone. In the terms that you can reliably determine whether or not they have a cardiac arrest. So right, yeah, no rule for naloxone during an active cardiac arrest in the hospital. It's not bringing them back. Uh, in the hospital, respiratory arrest, what I want to give is carefully titrated doses of naloxone just to get this patient breathing with intact airway reflexes. And from there on in, I want this patient to wake up on their own. In the hospital, a live patient with withdrawal is not a win because precipitated withdrawal puts them at risk for um, pulmonary edema. It, it causes uh, conflict, causes people to want to leave before you're sure you're through that resedation risk period, which then gets into a question of, do I restrain, do I not restrain? Does somebody get punched? All of these problems. Right. Um, and, um, underappreciated, but super important, it erodes, really destroys trust in the healthcare system, right? So now people who we would like to come to us seeking help to get help for their opioid use disorder now never want to see us again because they hate us because of what we did to them. Absolutely. So out of hospital, give naloxone, don't worry about whether it's cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest. If you're sure you've got a pulse here and I can ventilate the patient environment, go low and slow. Or ideally, the ideal dose of naloxone for a lot of these patients is zero, and that's great. They can they can still have naloxone. You want to hand it to them before they walk out the door. On the way out the door. Well, thank you for expounding on that a little bit. We can move over to another antidote that is trenched in controversy. Uh, this one would be flumazenil. So the guidelines come out, and these ones say flumazenil's role in benzodiazepine poisoning, it does have a role in some low-risk patients. Can you discuss the recommendations that we have in the AHA guidelines and kind of what should be considered? Sure. I think the low-risk patients are easy, but there's not many of them. 
right? The low risk patient is the person where you have a past medical history, you have a medication use history, and you know all the co-ingestants, right? And that patient is, you know, typically the person that you're sedating in the emergency department or sedating elsewhere. So you know they're not benzodiazepine dependent. You just gave them um, uh, some midazolam. The shoulder's back in. All of a sudden, they're not breathing because the pain stimulus is gone and they've got no, you know, nothing driving against that. And you can, in that situation, reverse a benzodiazepine and really not worry about it. All right. Um, but then there's the undifferentiated overdose patient. Here, this was really controversial. Our group struggled with this. And in the end, we've given conservative advice. And I will say that these are guidelines. It is not a standard of care. It is not a you must do, right? And these guidelines are really intended for the general medical practitioner. And I think this is one of these situations where your tox brain can take it to the next level beyond the target level for, for general guidelines. Um, one of the things we, so everybody on this podcast is probably familiar with literature that says that if you give flumazenil to somebody who's benzodiazepine dependent or who has taken a seizure provoking medication like a tricyclic, you can provoke seizures that may be status epilepticus and that's bad. However, most of those seizures are easily treated. And wait, 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 you can't treat them. You gave flumazenil. What you can't yeah, give them? You can usually can. <laughs> plus, we have phenobarbital now. We've always yes. had phenobarbital, but we're not afraid to use it now. I'll, I'll add just a point of clarification there. You know, that is a common concern. You give flumazenil, they have a seizure. You block the benzodiazepine receptor. How do you treat the seizure now? Because you can't use benzos. But, you know, you can overcome even drugs with a high binding affinity to the benzoreceptor like flumazenil. If you have a high enough concentration of benzodiazepines, it can outcompete that. So in theory, you can give enough benzos uh, to actually outcompete that. Just give more than you normally would. That's one adage that's sometimes recommended. And then, of course, uh, phenobarbital, which will actually give you some GABAergic tone outside of the benzodiazepine receptor is the other is another way that you can treat those seizures. I uh, just wanted to comment on what we're referring to here. Keep yeah, and you, you try not to have people ride the roller coaster of, poly, of polypharmacy here. Right. But um, uh, so here's the big unknown. So these papers that looked at flumazil administration and seizure risk all come from the tricyclic antidepressant era, right? But people aren't prescribed tricyclics much anymore. So you'd say, well, if they're not prescribed tricyclics, and this isn't a problem anymore, right? No, what are they getting now? Bupropion, right? <laughs> Idaho, famous for potatoes. Bupropion, famous for seizures, right? You know, um, uh, escitalopram and citalopram, right? You've got some really seizure-producing medications that have replaced the TCAs. How does that equation balance out for flumazil administration? I have no idea. I don't think anyone has any idea. So here we gave conservative advice saying, look, don't give flumazil for the undifferentiated overdose. Just support the patient's ventilation. They'll be fine. Um, do I occasionally break that rule? Yeah, but I do it with low dose and careful in just the right patient with a level of, of training experience that, you know, is for this problem. I mean, I don't know if I'm above average in general, but, but hopefully as a board certified toxicologist practicing emergency medicine, I'm doing okay. Right. right. So I think it's Okay to, you know, to step a little further out, but do it with caution and do it with the humility of saying that, you know, this flumazil study is probably actually, they, they do need to be repeated in the modern era. And um, I think they are 
um, being repeated or soon to be repeated in the modern era. Um, I, I, I know of a study that um, hopefully got funded, um, uh, but we just got to take a look at this whole question again because our knowledge is is dusty. Right. Really characterizing what that risk is in the modern era would be important. Intubation could potentially be prevented in some of these scenarios. And that's intubation is not a completely benign procedure. You know, so characterizing that risk could be very useful. I, I was talking to a colleague of mine, an emergency medicine physician and a medical toxicologist, Justin Corker, and he's been on the show before. And he had an interesting take on this regarding kind of the stigma of never flu mazinone, because maybe there are, like you've said, potentially, I mean, there's definitely low risk patients where, you know, this is your in the emergency department doing a sedation. You gave them the benzo, you know, their history and ingestions, and you know, there's not going to be a risk of reversing that benzo you gave. But then there's maybe even other patients within this that could have a benefit. And he had this interesting point, you know, in the emergency department, people give antibiotics uh, for potential infections, things that we don't even know for sure that you're infected. And let's say you're penicillin allergic, they will challenge you. You know, I know it happens in my shop all the time. We challenge penicillin allergies with ceftriaxone. And there is some small percentage of cross-reactivity there. There's a known risk, but it seems reasonable that the risks outweigh the benefits. Even if there's other agents you could potentially use that are maybe just not as good, we will take the risk with ceftriaxone uh, in a penicillin allergy. But in a fumazinil, you know, suddenly the risk has to be 0%. I mean, we do have other ways to treat, uh, you know, fumazinil precipitated seizures. They're, you know, it is a little scary, but there are things that can be done. So characterizing that in the modern era, you know, really would be interesting. So clinicians can make a more informed risk benefit analysis. Appreciate that point. Okay, and we'll just touch here. Talked about naloxone and cardiac arrest. Uh, here in the guidelines, it does say, there is no role for flumazenil in cardiac arrest, which seems pretty intuitive. The patient's heart has stopped beating. Flumazenil is probably not going to do much to reverse that. Yep. Agree. Okay. Some other key points I noticed in this in this guideline that we could talk about a little bit. Cyanide poison. Here they emphasize, uh, you know, if you believe someone is cyanide poisoned, don't wait for the lab. Uh, you should administer antidotes immediately. I think that's probably what most people are doing, but it's a great reminder. You know, if you have someone with soot in their mouth from a house fire, they're shocky. Yeah, uh, you know, everybody can get a lactate back now. Right. right. Thanks to thanks to the sepsis guidelines, lactate's pretty ubiquitous in all but the smallest facilities. And serum lactate's pretty good at detecting cyanide. So if you've got a question and the lactate's going to be back in a few minutes and the patient's not dying right in front of you, okay. Uh, hydroxocobalamin is pretty benign, right? The biggest problem with hydroxocobalamin is all of your labs, not all, but a lot of your labs are going to be messed up. And I've absolutely seen hydroxocobalamin um, uh, prolong ICU lengths of stay, um, not because it hurt the patient in any way, but because the admitting team kept working people up for liver failure and other diseases they didn't have because the serum was orange. Um, so I'd have a very low threshold for giving hydroxocobalamin if you've got time if you got uncertainty and a little time, lactates are great, uh, but those cyanide levels are sent out, so they'll come back after the funeral. I mean, you got to do something. Right. Um, the the nitride thiosulfate kits, um, I think they're reasonable, but they're they require um, more thoughtful consideration than hydroxocobalamin. Um, hydroxocobalamin is is just more straightforward, which is why we 
um, prefer it in these guidelines. Uh, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with giving a cyanide antidote kit if you're comfortable doing so. And and um, sodium thiosulfate's a freebie, right? I know the Barbarda studies showed that uh, um, hydroxycobalamin alone and hydroxycobalamin plus thiosulfate um, were equivalent, but every cyanide model is a little different. Um, and I think that, you know, binding the toxin and then enhancing its elimination is a pretty standard thing in tox. And sodium thiosulfate is so benign that I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't chase hydroxycobalamin with thiosulfate. That said, you know, the, the Parisians have, uh, who've been at this longer than any of us have uh, decided they just don't need it. And they do hydroxycobalamin alone and their patients do fine. So, um, and they, they have more hands-on experience than I do. So, right. Key point, thiosulfate alone probably isn't going to do your job. For the listeners, most are probably familiar, but thiosulfate will bind with cyanide to create thiocyanate and then be eliminated but it's an enzyme dependent process and it takes a little bit of time so when you're, your immediate react action you need hydroxycobalamin which will bind immediately with cyanide and create cyanocobalamin non-enzyme dependent uh, so that's kind of the right away and then thiosulfate as dr Lavonis was saying you could chase it with that to help eliminate any extra but it's probably not going to be the immediate lifesaver and i think just emphasizing here, yeah, don't wait for a cyanide level. If you have the clinical picture, which includes, you know, lactate, that's probably time to pull the trigger. It's also a great paper. I think it was from the French. I'll have to look at, but it looked at those who had soot on their mouth and a lactate, I think greater than 10 had a, pred a positive predictive value for a cyanide of greater than uh, one mole or, for, you know, 40 nanograms per mil of greater than 90%. So you got a high lactate. I'll put it in the show notes if any listeners are curious. Okay, then let's talk a little bit about beta blockers. I love this for this. So we get called so frequently through the poison center about, you know, a bad beta blocker overdose or a bad calcium channel blocker overdose. And these people are circling the drain. You know, they're shocky. They got, you know, systolics in the 60s, 40s sometimes. It's pretty scary. Some of them are very bradycardic. And this is when you want to have a checklist of things to do. And I think these guidelines provide a wonderful checklist. You know, one thing I love, so beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. And the calcium channel blockers, it says, start with vasopressors. It, 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 that's a practice that we have um, because it's a lot easier logistically to get those things going. Yeah, um, they're right at bedside. There's a probably a premixed bag of norepi within 10 feet of the patient. And yes. everybody's used to it. Just start it. Right. Yeah. There's, there's one thing we don't know anything about in calcium channel blocker, beta blocker poisoning, or most other poisonings is sequencing of modalities. Right. I mean, yes, we know you should do these things. We know they're individually effective and they're even additively effective. But what should you do first? We don't know what you should do first. So my practice is the same as yours. You know, go, go nor FB early. Um, right. And then every patient, you know, look at the response, right? If you got where you need to be on norepi and you don't need, you know, your norepi dose is low, hey, you know what? Ride that horse home. You're succeeding. You're winning, right? But if the patient's needing a high dose of norepi or if you're not getting the response you need, go insulin early. Right. And that I think, and, and this is sort of important just because I think talks, there's so many different things you need to know how to treat. and okay, I see beta blocker. Okay, what jumps to mind? Glucagon, because I know that's an antidote. So I have a bad beta blocker overdose and people, oh, well, I'm going to get the whole supply of glucagon from the hospital and put it into this patient. But really, you could start 
with NORAD, right? I mean, you, you, pressers still work. So that is a, so I think that's what's useful about the, these guidelines is it says on paper, hey, start out with, with um, some pressers and then go rally up whatever other antidotes you think you might need. Kudos to the Phoenix group that's shown, I mean, they are a vasopressor, almost vasopressor only shop. And they've published good results on vasopressor only for cardiogenic shock from from beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. So you know, hooray! Let it's a it's a fantastic group that does wonderful critical care toxicology, and they have success with this. Um, and the secret to their sauce is simple: there's no max dose; they just keep cranking. Um, however, vasopressors have their side effects, and insulin um, is a force multiplier. It's often vasopressor sparing. Um, at least, and sometimes patients really are refractory. And uh, I think that most of your listeners um, are are familiar enough with high dose insulin to be comfortable and to know how to do it. And we want to bring the rest of the world along. This is one of the first guidelines that has a. Ri- this is something that we all do, but it's actually kind of hard to find. Um, it says right here in the beta blocker poisoning section, we recommend that high dose insulin be administered for hypotension due to beta blocker poisoning refractory to or in conjunction with vasopressor therapy. Most of the data for high-dose insulin, or some of the best data for high-dose insulin, is is in animal models of propranolol poison pigs. From the Minnesota group, some really fantastic studies looking at propranolol. Yet it's actually pretty hard to find any guideline that says high-dose insulin should be used for beta blocker poisoning. You have the 2016 uh, adult calcium channel blocker guidelines that say go ahead and use high-dose insulin. But if you want to point a clinician to a guideline that says this is says use high-dose insulin for beta blockers, it's actually kind of tough. So I actually like that this guideline has it explicitly stated right in here if I need to point someone to it, you know, when doing a telephone consult. Well, and and for the beta block, beta blockers are straightforward, right? They give you cardiogenic shock. Insulin is an inotrope. All right, it's not a vasopressor. It does not give you peripheral tone. So for beta blockers, insulin's perfectly tailored. For calcium channel blockers, it depends, right? Um, sometimes you have um, a loss of inotropy and chronotropy, and sometimes you have a loss of peripheral tone. For those patients in vasoplegic shock, you probably aren't going to get a lot of mileage out of insulin because you're treating the wrong side of the dysfunction. Um, uh, and you know, I I have historically taught uh, that calcium channel blockers lose that central versus peripheral selectivity and overdose. And now what I would say is they sometimes use that selectivity in overdose, right? So some amlodipine overdoses look just like a verapamil overdose, and some are just purely refractory vasoplegic shock. High-dose insulin is an inotrope. It's going to make your heart squeeze more. And if that's what you need, reach for it early because it doesn't have the peripheral side effects of some of the pressors. And it's actually really not that hard to do. It's frequent lab, it's work intensive for the nurses, but it's not highly complex decision-making. If you've never done it before, that first time you order a one unit per kilo insulin bolus, you're gonna start to get a little chest pain. You might take a little nitro yourself, right? But by the 10th time, you realize that you're helping the patient, not hurting the patient. And it's, um, it's a great modality. Right. So right here in the beta blocker guidelines, it's kind of a go-to because as you said, it makes sense. In the calcium channel blocker, you need to know what shock you're dealing with. And if you're refractory to vasopressors, you could certainly add it on as an adjunct, but uh, it's really more for the cardiac dysfunction as opposed to someone who's at a primary vasoplegic. Great abstract by John Cole and colleagues at uh, NACCT 22 showing 
amlodipine overdose is needed way high weight like twice the amount of high dose insulin probably not because they were that shocky but because it wasn't doing very much for the overdose in the first place but so i think these are all great i I think one thing that is interesting here is that there is a no benefit recommendation for iv lipid emulsion therapy in beta blocker poisoning and i'm curious you know when i was starting training this was 10 years ago we I remember running to a overdose and we thought it was they were bright at card that was corvetolol I can't actually remember which one it is and we're like huh maybe we should go get some lipid it also says I'll clarify for calcium channel blockers routine use is also not recommended of lipid and that's consistent with the adult calcium channel blocker guidelines written by Dr Saint Ange who actually has a PhD in calcium channel blocker overdose I learned but it's very uh, similar to that where they say only use lipid in extremis or potential cardiac arrest. But it seems like these guidelines are saying, hey, lipid, probably not a big benefit in either of these overdoses. So can we talk a little bit about this recommendation? Yeah, you know, first of all, no, nobody's ever written a perfect paper on anything. And I look at the wording for those no benefit recommendations for beta blocker and calcium channel blocker. And if I could have one more rewrite on these guidelines, I probably would have used the same phrasing for both. So please don't parse out the fact that we use different wording there for both. There's no deep meaning to that. That was just, we're saying the same thing two different ways. I think this recommendation to, to avoid delay, lean away from intralipid for, and intralipid's a brand name. I really should just be calling it lipid emulsion, nothing pro or con one brand of, of that product, but the data are mixed at best about whether lipid emulsion has a benefit in beta blocker and calcium channel, calcium channel blocker poisoning. And the big thing that worries us is this concern raised by the Hennepin group. I gotta, I gotta shout out that Hennepin group. They have done some amazing work in this space, right? Um, they are on fire and, and doing the best basic science in the field in this area. Uh, Hats off to them. And, you know, 90% of what we know about this area comes from uh, from that group. With a shout out to late Kristen Engdebretson, who um, was an inspiration to all of us. But the thing that um, really we didn't consider for a long time, I touched about this earlier, is these patients have big pools of drug in their gut. And if it's a, a lipid-soluble drug and you make the serum more lipophilic, you're increasing absorption. And that's not good. Now, how much that turns out to be a problem in real life, I think we need more studies to know. But now you've got human observational data that says these things really, that uh, lipid emulsion really doesn't work for these overdoses. You've got some scary case reports uh, backed up with levels uh, that say you can increase absorption. Um, I'm not going to fault anyone for reaching for intralipid last. Right. If you've got a patient who is dying despite everything else you can do and you've got nothing else, this is the last thing if the last tiny fork at the bottom of the kitchen sink go for it nobody's going to call you a bad doctor for doing it but it's not where we should be leading first not based on the current science and and we're in sync with the other groups that have done 20 page deep dives on this area i don't think this is an outlier i think that lipids had its time where it was being given to lots of people with semi-serious poisoning and i think that we can get better and move on from there yeah, absolutely. And I right, like I said, this was 10 years ago when we when we were reaching for it. Now more and more data is coming out. I know there was a human trial with Natoprolol showing, you know, even the mechanisms we think work are not probably what's going on. There was a human trial with Natoprolol showing 
no change in concentration of metoprolol when lipid was given, even though it's got a log P of 1.8. So, you know, the lipid sink is kind of maybe not correct. I know there's other trials showing log P isn't associated with survival. And over There's all sorts of things that can be given into. And so, it's okay to say we don't know, right? Right. The first step in generating new medical knowledge is to say, all right, knowledge stops here. Everything back here is the frontier. That's where we should be doing our research. And that's great. But when we gloss over what we don't know, we do the field and our future patients a disservice. Um, one of the nice things about being you know, forced to write in this knowledge chunk format is it makes it really, really clear, right? There's an awful lot of light blue C, uh, class C, a limited data level of evidence and class C expert opinion level of evidence in these guidelines. And the whole point of calling things out there is to say, look, if you see class C level of evidence, it means um, there ought to be a study. And I will happily write a letter to your IRB saying, yeah, you need there, there needs to be a study in this area. Lots of things in medicine take about faces when you study them properly. Well, there's so many other great points that I'd love to go over, but I think we're not going to have time. So I'm just going to have to have the listeners, you got to pull this guideline up and read it because it really is a fun read, to be honest. Some basic things, you know, use lipid for local anesthetic toxicity. We know a lot about that. Use sodium bicarb for sodium channel blockers or organophosphates. I actually thought this was a very great recommendation. Avoid neuromuscular blockers that are metabolized by acetylcholinesterase in organophosphate overdose, which probably isn't something people think about a lot, but it makes a lot of inherent sense because those are, of course, inhibiting acetylcholinesterase. Some good things to read in here, but I want to jump into, since we are limited on time, future treatments. What else needs to be known? Or I guess, what do you think the future updates are going to be looking into? Well, first of all, I will send a shot across the bow to whoever does this, you know, again, five or 10 years from now. Um, we should have covered inhalants. We just, as a group, we talked about what was in and out of scope, which was really a challenge with a project like this. And we never talked about inhalants. And then the, one of the peer reviewers came in and said, you need to cover inhalants. And I just slapped my forehead and said, yep. <laughs> so, um, I mean, that is a potential hot topic and it should have been on our list. That is um, myocardial sensitization from, it does bring up a lot of. Yeah, we see it. It definitely happens. And we don't know what we mean by that statement. Other than the heart has a lot of extra PVCs, right? <sighs> you know, it makes sense. You let extra calcium into the heart. I get it. But, uh, you know, that's, that was a, 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 just a blind spot miss in these guidelines. Should have covered it. Otherwise, I think that we've touched on some of the big areas of controversy. Uh, I think we need a flumazenil study in the modern generation antidepressant era. I think we need to know much more about uh, the role of different therapies in vasoplegic shock, right? Cardiogenic shock, we're pretty good at. But vasoplegic shock is a really tough nut, including, for that matter, ECMO, right, which replaces cardiac output but doesn't give you peripheral tone. The cocaine literature is, is pretty stale, Cyanide's been well-researched, but it's all about the model and the route. And I think the other thing is ECMO, right? I, one of the things I've learned is to lean forward in ECMO, because if you wait until the patient is absolutely refractory, then unless you're in an ECMO center, you've waited too long. It takes time. And this is not, people talk about crashing somebody in ECMO. You know, if you look at actual pictures of real ECMO patients, it's not easy. It is not low drama. It is a high skill, high risk intervention that doesn't always go smoothly. And we need to understand really better patient selection. 
And then we need to know how to couple ECMO with extracorporeal removal, right? A dialysis membrane or resin hemoperfusion or something else to get the drug out. But, I mean, there's plenty of work to do in talks, and I love that there's it's a growing field, right? It's tripled in size since I started. There's so many smart young doctors and pharmacists in um, in the field now. Um, let's turn them loose on all these things which we don't know the answer to, and try to be a lot smarter five or ten years from now than we are now. I love that. Yeah, a lot to be discovered on the frontier, and it's good that we are formulating the questions to answer. And I think the guidelines. Uh, actually do a great job uh, in posing a lot of the questions that do need to be answered. So for any young talks researchers out there, go ahead and flip to the bottom of the guidelines where knowledge gaps are listed. And I think you'll find a number of hypotheses to explore. Well, uh, Dr. Eric Lavonis joined us today and what a fantastic dive into the guidelines. Any final considerations for the listeners? I don't know, Ryan, I don't have a good answer for that one. Go forth, take great care of patients. Let the patient show you what's working. Be humble. Well, I really appreciate you joining the show today. And I really appreciate getting to pick your brain and hear your insights on really the depth and clear mastery of knowledge of the literature that you have. So I appreciate it. Uh, Thank you thanks for having me, Ryan. This has been a lot of fun. All right. That'll wrap it up for today's episode. The AHA cardiac arrest and life-threatening poisoning management guidelines covering a number of very common poisonings with easily communicatable key takeaways can be found in the journal circulation. If you want a review of all of the recommendations that the guidelines make, check out the high-yield review that was released alongside this episode or read the guidelines, which I would also encourage. If you like what you're listening to today, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us reach other people interested in learning about toxicology. You can follow the show on social media to see when new episodes are going to be released. We have a Twitter at Lab Poison. You can follow myself at EM Poison Farm D. We have an Instagram, Tox underscore Talk, and a Facebook page, The Poison Lab. All free shows, medical games, and resources are available at www.thepoisonlab.com. And you can always reach out to the show anytime at talkstalk1 at gmail.com. Suggestions, appreciation notes, or critical commentaries of anything we've said. We always appreciate getting to hear from listeners. Thanks for listening today. I hope you can tune in next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio mates. See you next time.